Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Ananda Morris Paver. Ananda is an editor in the edutech industry where her role focuses on pedagogical quality and development. She holds an MA in English and American Literature from the University of Kent, with research interests spanning representations of gender and the body in popular culture, specifically in horror and fantasy narratives of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. She was the lead editor on the fourth volume of Literary Mentor's Journal and continues to write autobiographical and critical essays on a freelance basis. Ananda's piece in Living While Feminist is called Feminism is the Pits and details her experience of having her hairy underarms become a site of political discussion. In her piece, she says of this experience, It was one of a million little manipulative moments which make up the negotiations between men and women, each one forcing us to write and rewrite this ancient oath that everything we do is for them and not for ourselves. It felt unfair that my natural state had become a teaching moment, and yet I'd be damned if I didn't at least try to make it clear that he was seeing the cause rather than a symptom of my feminism. So today I'm going to be talking with Ananda about body hair and when it's a good time to have a feminist debate. Welcome, Ananda. Hi, Jen. Nice to be here. Your story starts outside a hostel when you were a traveller. Can you tell us about that moment and why you decided to write about it for Living While Feminist? It's It was an interesting moment. I think when you're travelling, you really are living a new identity in every place you arrive. And it becomes this wonderful opportunity to explore different sides of yourself. And it's fascinating which identities come up more and more. And you feel like perhaps that is an essential self that you're showing to people because they have no context of who you are and you can make up any story when you meet them. And I think that particular interaction really stuck with me because it was so bizarre. The relationship with this person that developed kind of seemed to change and morphed uh, from what I thought was just a kind of polite interaction to a friendship to quite clearly something a bit more romantic or intense for him that was not the case for me. And I suppose I'd been unpacking that strange interaction for some time. Um, and so when it came time to to write a piece and I saw the call for submissions and I decided I definitely wanted to contribute and I wasn't sure what I was going to write about and whether I should make it a bit more academic or a bit more personal, Um, And I just started jotting down ideas and the story sort of unfolded and I realized that it had been kind of there in the back of my mind or um, in my heart. And I'd only just started to express it um, and it flowed so naturally. It felt like something that I obviously needed to get off my chest. So you're standing there, you're having your nice holiday being your new self (laughs) and the man feels that it's his position or it's interesting to him to make a comment about your armpit hair and you say that you were simultaneously amused flattered and irritated that your armpit hair had been perceived as a site of political action why these three feelings of amusement flattery and irritation I suppose 
I was so ready to have an adventure. Um, that whole trip, that was the mindset that I took into it. So every interaction was an opportunity to explore something new. And I guess that was where the the kind of amusement came in and the the flattery. It was great that I was getting this opportunity to speak to someone and that they deemed uh, my company interesting enough to pursue. And so I suppose, yeah, that was that was sort of where the the flattery side came in. But I, I guess the amusement because it's it was so typical somehow. There was something so basic about it was like, okay, we're going to speak about my armpit hair. You too. All right. Um, it's not the first time that I've been asked about it, um, mostly because I I don't really care as much about um, removing it as I think, or almost as I feel that I should. I suppose as a woman, you end up getting all these messages about what your body's supposed to look like. So it's something I've been grappling with since I started growing it basically um and I remember quite clearly when I was about 13 saying to my mom I want to go and get rid of all of my leg hair uh, and she was like no you don't you don't need to do that like it's it's barely leg hair yet um but there were other girls in my class who were doing it so I really wanted to so since you know prepubescence you're there already um polishing yourself you're already uh, trying to make your body as attractive as possible for people to view it and you don't even realize that that's what you're doing so I think that was a bit of the irritation reaction that frustration like okay we're we're doing this again uh someone else has pointed out this thing that I'm already vaguely self-conscious about but decided specifically not to worry about on this trip because I'm on an adventure and adventurers don't worry about removing arm hair but now I have to discuss it with you so I guess there was all of these mixed emotions of here's this opportunity to tell someone about me, to tell someone about what I believe in, to explain to someone that the way my body hair grows really has nothing to do with anyone but myself. At the same time, it's like, okay, I don't get to just be a human being having an interaction based on my personality or the things I care about. It's based on my body and it's based on how I look right now. And in the piece, you talk about your friends who say that they remove their bodily hair because they're more comfortable that way or prefer it that way with a hint of what I read as either doubt or suspicion that they're not being quite honest with themselves about it. Do you think that's the case or what was the accurate reading of that sentiment? I think you got that pretty accurately. I I am very suspicious when people tell me they, they're removing their body hair because that makes them feel comfortable. And I, I suppose because I'm don't find that to be the case that I'm like either they've reached some higher plane of existence where having no body hair and I suppose it's not actually having no body hair it's the experience of regrowing that body hair which is so uncomfortable um and of the reaction your skin has to removing body hair both of which are unpleasant in my experience and I was I'm always confused when people are like oh but I prefer not having it and I think maybe there is a bit of me being a bit uncharitable unch- there, that there is a lot of social comfort in not having hair. You feel like you can go to the beach and wear a bikini and not feel exposed because you're very groomed. You're like a, I suppose, a statue, you know, <laughs> statues don't have any blemishes and, and we see those as high art. So you want your body to be as close to high art as possible. There could be comfort there, but the comfort's so short-lived 
Uh, I've since had more conversations with my friends about it and found out that it really is more of a psychological comfort than an actual physical comfort because there are all sorts of issues with ingrown hairs or rashes due to wax or um, pain from epilating. And I suppose I see that all as the same experience, that, that hairlessness requires that pain as well as any sort of psychological or social comfort that comes from it. Whereas I think other people see it as purely that moment of hairlessness is so delightful uh, that it can't be tampered with by any of the symptoms of removal that, that could be unpleasant. I think the interesting thing is that whether you do or don't do it, it's perceived as a political decision, right? So if you decide to grow your hair, you're perceived as being a hairy feminist or whatever the narrative is. And if you do decide to remove your hair, then it's not necessarily perceived as for you or your body is consumed in a more comfortable way, but it's all ultimately about the male gaze and the consumption of your body by someone who has nothing to do with you which is why I liked so much that you said in your piece, I'm not the type of person who grows my armpit hair to make a political statement, but it's perceived anyway by the stranger as that. And then you say, I remember thinking at the time, can't I also have a holiday? I'm here for a holiday. Must I school every man walking him step by baby step through female experience only to have him assume that we're flirting? And this fatigue of having to explain everything about yourself is something that I think many listeners will relate to. And I wonder what your decision-making process is for when to just give up and go home and for when to engage. I debate that with myself every time. Every time it's like, okay, am I going to do this? And I'm so stubborn and I'm so enthusiastic about the theory because it's what I've studied and I care so much about the outcome that I always fall into that trap. I always think, okay, but I'll tell this guy. And I know even as I'm doing it, it's like, this isn't going to make a difference to him. He's not here to get a lecture on Judith Butler. He doesn't care about your performance of your gender. He doesn't care about the fact that he's uh, made this assumption about you. He's really just there because he wants to have a little bit of a flirt or he thinks he can get something out of it. And I realize that sounds so cynical, but I guess I have this little hope every time. Maybe something I say will get through to them. Maybe something I say will stick in the back of this person's mind. And much later on, it'll blossom into something that'll make them uh, an ally to women. Um, who knows? So there's, there's hope there. I guess it's hope that inspires it. I was listening to a talk by Neil deGrasse Tyson last night around scientific thinking, and he was saying um, that you have to be open to changing your mind. So an, an informed mind is one that says, I believe X, Y, and Z, but if presented by new evidence, I will change my belief. And what you're saying is basically that that isn't even the intention. The intention is not to learn a new thing or to change their belief. It's rather to have a bit of a flirt or, you know, have a chat on a holiday. But at the end of the day, they're not actually interested in changing their behavior most of the time. Um, but I was also interested in the perception of another friend of yours who says to you when you talk about it later that this guy was just insulting you to get into your pants, which reminded me of when we used to say boys pulled girls' hair to show affection or interest. So I wonder what you made of your friend's reading and maybe as a follow-up, do, do men never grow up? Do they still think if they pull our hair that we'll find them attractive? I, I mean, I wonder if that, and that's a very interesting um, correlation that you made there. I didn't necessarily see the parallels when I was writing it, but I guess 
uh, like negging as it's popularly known now is such a seen as such a foolproof way to get someone to like you or not to like you, but to get them into your power. And I guess that is the difference. Um, and that comes up so often in, in narratives of rape and gender abuse that we're, we're saying, is it actually romantic? Is it liking or is it uh, power? You know, that those interactions uh, are so framed in our society as, oh, if someone likes you, this is how they're showing affection, you know, um, there's this excuse for, for men that, oh, they don't have very much emotional maturity. So this is the best they can do. This is them trying to uh, get your attention. This is them trying to show you that they care. And that is such a dangerous narrative because it really does excuse a lot of quite abusive behavior um, the sort of, oh, he just doesn't know how to show me how much he cares, so he's going to hit me because that's how much he cares. He just can't keep it in. That, that, that there's some failure to adhere to um, socially responsible behavior or some failure to adhere to a, uh, I don't know, a, a communal or a grown-up way of being that women are expected to do from when they're really young. Uh, we're taught from a very young age, oh, you have to show care, you have to show love, you have to be gentle, you can't hurt someone. Um, and boys aren't really taught that. Um, they're taught, if you have strong feelings, you don't have to do anything to behave in a way that's socially appropriate, you can just express them in whatever way feels physically appropriate to you. Um, and so I suppose there's a, a danger in that oh, pulling your hair narrative that it's benign, um, and it covers up that it's actually just someone uh, giving into their base instincts. It's someone not behaving well, not because they can't, but because they've chosen not to. When that becomes a flirtation game of, I can make you feel small, I can make you feel lesser, I can make you feel unattractive so that when I pay you attention, it feels more meaningful to you. You have this um, unappealing growth of hair under your armpits but I'm still talking to you. Aren't I actually a, a wonderful choice of person to hang out with? Aren't I actually a considerate um, and forgiving mate? You know, the, there's this, this real sense of generosity in that um, gesture when really what they've done is created the situation where you're lesser than so that uh, they can manipulate that or use that to their advantage or at least that's how I read it this whole process of nagging um which is a term that you've just revealed to me <laughs> I just thought of it as as emotional abuse but it's, it's interesting to me that there's this very friendly social term of nagging it, it's essentially you know breaking someone down so that you have the power to build them up again and it is abusive but then you consider this reading and for a while you feel a little bit stupid about what's happened but then you think there's another possible theory, which is that this person was pretending to be woke and to be an ally in order to get you to keep talking to them, which is what you call the woke strategy. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you think that is? It's something I've seen happen more and more or experience happen more and more in the last couple of years as uh, the idea of being woke, the idea of being uh, an ally to uh, fringe groups or groups who don't have the same kind of social or cultural capital 
um, as you know, your average white male, um, as that's become more popular, as people have seen that as, as some kind of social intellectual superiority, obviously, uh, people are trying to cash in on that. And I think, and I, and I don't know how intentional it is, but I've met a lot of men uh, over the last few years who have been very quick to tell me that they're feminists, that they believe in women's rights, uh, that they really want to understand a female experience. And it's always like, it feels so platitudinal. It's like, yeah, you guys go through a lot. Like women are better than men. They really are. And I always want to say, no, we're not better than men. That's not the point of feminism. It's not a competition. It's like, can we all just get to be a human being? And I guess that's what this whole story was grappling with. Is like my experience of being a human being or my attempt just to be natural and to live my life without worrying about my appearance for a moment uh, is seen as some kind of flagrant sort of disregard of um, social norms and that's revolutionary in some way and I always want to say no it's it's revolutionary to think actually I mean there's something really abnormal to think that we need to uh, pluck and manipulate our physical form to be allowed to appear in you know polite society that's bizarre if you really think about it it's also about what's considered normal. So if you had, say, noticed his armpits were hairy and said, so, hey, why do you grow your armpit hair? The whole exchange would have been, I think, confusing to this particular person. In the same way that I'm vegetarian, often when people find out I'm vegetarian, they say, oh, why did you decide to be vegetarian? And then I say, well, why did you decide to eat meat? And there's this like long lull in the conversation where there's like a brain fart happening. And I think it's a thing of what we assume to be normal is un it's not questioned. And so when we assume women should be hairless, we don't question that women should be hairless, but the very real fact is that all of us grow body hair, or the vast majority of us grow body hair. So it's something to do with, again, systems of power and what's considered normal. Well, I'm interested as well about this idea of, you know, so you've decided to engage in the debate, you've decided it's worth a shot, or you can't resist getting stuck in. Um, and you describe having a feeling that when you're asked to talk about feminism, you know that the person asking is expecting you to talk on behalf of all feminists everywhere. But at the same time, you have a strong urge to, to end everything you say with, but that's just me. So talk to me more about this feeling of discomfort. I guess it's something that's come out of my my research and my work and my understanding that it's the plurality of stories and of narratives um, that really creates the opportunity for diversity, a diverse, diverse thought, a true uh, kind of equitable society has to recognize that there are hundreds, thousands, millions of different ways of seeing the world, of being in the world. Uh, and unfortunately, because human beings need shortcuts, because we need uh, nice little neat stories to be able to help us understand things, um, we want to say, this is the feminist narrative. This is what a feminist is like. Um, all women need this. Or, um, you know, all people of this race or all people of this physical ability or age or whatever it is, whatever group um, we're speaking about, there's this 
real uh, impulse to categorize it very neatly because that's easy. That allows us to tick it off. You know, oh, we've done this thing. We've done that thing. We've done what we need to do for the women. Great. Now we can go back to being comfortable. And so I really do try to sit in that discomfort and try to sit in that uh, understanding that it's, I can only speak for myself. And that is a, a massive responsibility if you're speaking to someone who thinks that you're a, a sort of a mouthpiece for a movement. Uh, and we see so often now with feminist um, movements and narratives that there are there is such a kind of plurality so many of them um and when you know one group of feminists is more militant or um says something that another group doesn't like there's this idea that oh those are bad feminists or those are um people who've i don't know given up the movement or let the movement down as if we're all this group of people who meet in a hall somewhere and like made an agreement about our, our aims and our desires when really it's this huge network of people all over the world, just trying to do what they think is right. Uh, and just really trying to share what they care about um, and express the ways they feel they've been oppressed. And I, I guess that's, so apparent to me all the time that when people are like, oh, you were feminist, what do feminists actually want? I'm like, well, there isn't just one group. There isn't just one of us. I can't tell you what other feminists want. I can tell you what I think is important and what the label feminism means to me, which is a, a search for a space where human beings get to be who they are without fear, um, get to be who they are without desperation, you know? And I think a lot of movements do come down to that, but there are a lot of add-ons, a lot of um, paths that change the, the kind of narrative or the approach or the way people decide to go about um, their feminism, about what they care about. And that's natural, that's human nature. So I, yeah, I suppose it's just about trying to respect that. You speak about your whole episode in the chapter as just a paragraph in a long chapter in an ongoing book about me trying to describe myself without apology or defense. So it's almost a year now since your piece was submitted to me. How is that book going, your developmental book, since you wrote this piece? I, I would say it's going fairly well. There have been some dark chapters of late, but I, I guess that search for self-assurance and comfort does seem to get easier with age where things seem less important, uh, where things that felt out of my control um, are still out of my control, but it's less terrifying and it feels less like a failure that there are things that I can't control and that there are uh, lessons I know I need to learn and that they're going to come with time. And there's a lot more patience. Um, so I guess that's, that's the journey, right? To, to feel that when you greet 
not even just any other person, but greet yourself on a daily basis. It's like, you're okay. You're doing your best. You know, you're here with honesty and with hope um, and with love and hopefully, or that is enough because that's all you have. And how does being a feminist fit into that path to self-acceptance? For me, very much that there are, that there's a recognition of each individual being worthy. And I think what feminism does is unpacks a lot of the narratives that suggest you need to be a certain way to have value. Uh, So really, I think what feminism um, allows us to do and what particularly feminist theory and feminist writing does is it starts to unpick a lot of those stories about how a woman should be and sort of reveals the workings underneath. It shows this is how we set up this narrative so that you never feel good enough. This is how we... um, create uh, this idea of a perfect woman that you need to live up to. And when you see the workings, it's like when you see the man behind the curtain, you realize that it's not some kind of uh, universal truth that's been passed down. It's just someone's story, someone's idea they made up. And when you see that, that that that's just a story, you can write a new story. You can write a story that's more inclusive. You can let go a lot of the anxiety, the pain, the fear, the sense of responsibility that comes from uh, someone else's idea of who you need to be. And it gives you freedom to be something of your own creation. And for me, feminism really supports that and supports women doing that, hopefully supports other groups doing that, particularly with um, more intersectional feminist movements. Uh, And that's what I really like about it. Me too. (laughs) so you're not a full-time feminist you have a job (laughs) tell me about your work in the edutech industry and for those who have no idea what that is can you tell us a little bit about what edutech is and what it means to focus on pedagogical quality sure so uh, I currently work um, in a a large online education company so what we do is create uh, everything from short courses through uh, technical boot camps for learning um, to full degree programs for people to do their education online. Uh, So obviously with the um, COVID-19 pandemic, it's been a a real good time for online education. Uh, People have seen its value uh, and have seen what it can offer to to, I guess, democratize education in a way. So um, edutech comes from education technology. So it's about looking at how technology can support education, particularly online. Um, And my role as an editor is about quality assurance and about ensuring that the the journey that a student goes on um, from first being accepted to a course through all of their learning material um, makes sense is accessible, is uh, rewarding, um, and that there is a a clear logic to it. And so when um, I speak about pedagogical quality, 
that pedagogy is about how people learn, essentially, um, and looking at how we can use um, our understanding of what aids people's learning um, to make an online learning platform the best thing it can be. So what does online learning offer? Um, what functionalities does that provide for a, a person to get the, the learning, get the education um, that they need? Is there any specific limitation um, to learning online that we can mitigate? Is there uh, some fantastic new opportunity that online provides that you wouldn't necessarily get in a classroom setting um, in person? So it's, it's really about investigating, exploring that online education space. And my specific contribution is through um, looking at the language that we use at the logic of that journey and making sure it's something people can enjoy as well as get um, some quality education from. In the COVID lockdown, um, we've seen a lot of new online learning platforms crop up and a lot more courses offered. What would you say to someone who's not sure whether they should study online or whether they should hopefully go back to an in-person learning situation next year? You know, What would be your decision-making advice there? I say it's really about what you personally want and need to get out of the, the learning experience. So what type of functional skills you're looking for and what type of interaction you're looking for. Um, I personally love the uh, physical kind of in-person interaction with um, people in a, whether it's professional or an educational environment. So I think I might find it challenging personally to go through all my courses online with, you know, that online meeting fatigue um, so that would be something to think about. How do you interact best with people? Do you find it fatiguing to spend a lot of time looking at a computer? Um, so from a physical experience uh, perspective, that's one thing to think about. Um, there's also It's also worth thinking about your accessibility. So if you are looking at a course overseas that might be prohibitively expensive to do um, by traveling there, doing it online could be a really affordable way to access that level of education, to access those specialists, to access that opportunity. So that would be an argument for taking a course online um, if it's going to allow you to kind of get your hands onto information that would be um, otherwise withheld if you had to physically travel to that place um, and spend that money. Um, other considerations are how the course is presented. So uh, would you be doing, um, would there be interactive elements? I think interactivity is really important. If you're just getting coursework, it can sometimes become quite challenging to really engage with the material and to feel that you've uh, learnt um, the practical skills you need. So if there is a course that uh, offers um, whether it's interactive sessions or um, role play scenarios, depending on the, the skill that's being taught, um, that would be a, a factor to consider as well and, and definitely speaks highly of the course if there is a degree of interactivity. Um, also time commitment, 
uh, you might find that the flexibility of online education um, is fantastic if you have other responsibilities in life. Um, whereas if you have a lot of time and you really want to engage with people um, in person, then a physical option would probably be better an in-person option. I think we've seen a lot of um, what COVID has shown us is that many women are strapped with having to do their work and their childcare. And so flexible learning might also be a good option for people who are only free in the evenings and things like that as well. Three last questions for the end of the podcast that I'm asking everybody. My third to last question to you is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? I suppose my feminism is inspired by every book I read because in a book you you see a lot of those narratives play out, particularly if you're reading some of those old classics by, you know, the classic white European um, male author who's kind of handing down this knowledge about what women want and what women like. I mean, D.H. Lawrence is a classic example. So I think I find those kinds of things very inspiring because I'm like, this is exactly the sort of uh, discourse. These are exactly the sort of ideas that we need to dismantle. Um, but a, a book that I loved from an academic perspective uh, was Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. That was um, fundamental to really looking at how we enact those gender narratives. Um, and then Chris Krause's I Love Dick, uh, very before its time, kind of the mid-90s when it came out, um, a lot of the things she's talking about are currently debated now so yes those two specifically from a feminist perspective and do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by uh, one of my favorite feminist quotes and it is a bit tongue-in-cheek um is carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man and i realize that it could be a little bit um so because i'm a little harsh i think but I think for me, what it shows is really that the the idea of social currency or social capital and, and who we see as authorities is just made up. It's just a decision we've made, um, kind of to what I was speaking about earlier. So you can choose to value yourself as if you have that social value, as if you have that um, social currency, because it's just... Uh, a construct you know there, there is no real um, person who has more authority or more value than you uh, you can really give that to yourself I love it <laughs> um, do you have any bit of advice for other feminists on their journeys I guess my advice is always just look inward you know you have the answers within yourself. We have this running joke in my family about responding to advice you get, um, whether it's from a horoscope or if it's spiritual or nutritional guidance. Um, and it's always just take what resonates um, because it covers all manner of sins. But really that is, that is the best way to navigate the plethora of information. There's so much to read. There's so much to absorb and engage with. And I would recommend going out there, being an explorer, finding all the information you can, and then reflecting, and then saying, what resonates with me? What sits right with me? 
if it doesn't sit right, what is it? Is it that I need to broaden my horizons? Is it touching on some uh, socially constructed fear within me? Um, or is there something here that feels like it's not generous enough? So I guess looking within yourself to see where you can grow and then also using yourself as a check to making sure that the information that you're absorbing is something that feels kind to you, that feels meaningful uh, and not, I guess it's a way of getting around feeling torn between all of the different narratives that you encounter because there are so many. And also looking, if you feel terrible, that the source might not be yourself, that the problem might be in the world outside. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, for talking to me about your body hair and all of the things that we've shared. I really appreciate it and I loved your piece. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.